Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're going to talk about the political economy of weak states, states that aren't as well established, aren't as well developed uh, as you might stereotypically think of, say, the United States, the United Kingdom, Western liberal democracies, whatever that means, right? And we're going to work off an example. So uh, George Freenas, a business professor has written extensively about the relationship between oil companies and the Nigerian state. And we're going to use a little bit of his work to explore how companies interface with weak states. A lot of liberal institutional theory or kind of democratic institutional theory argues that democracy is major advantages because democracies have uh, credibility. You know when you're in a democracy that you're not going to have your property seized by the state. There's uh, regular elections, and that prevents the government from becoming uh, overly extractive because it has to worry about maybe losing the next election. These are the kinds of arguments you might see in, say, Asimoglu and Robinson's Why Nations Fail, or uh, North Weingast and, and, and uh, and a couple other other authors of uh, their book, Violence and Social Orders, arguments that democracy has these good institutional advantages, right? Uh, but sometimes if you look at particular developing countries, you can see that that argument is a little bit complicated. I'm not going to say it's straightforwardly right or wrong at this stage, but there's some complications. So, To start, let me give you a little bit of background on Nigeria and the oil companies. So, uh, Nigeria has had several periods of military dictatorship between 1966 and 1979, 1983 and 1993, and 1993 to 1999. There was a brief interlude in 1993, right? Now, after 1999, the Fourth Republic was installed. And so since 1999, Nigeria has been a democracy. But for the bulk of the back half of the 20th century, Nigeria had an authoritarian government. Nevertheless, in the middle of one of these authoritarian periods in 1996, oil companies named Nigeria and the African region as a whole as the most attractive investment destination. And one of the reasons why is that oil is relatively cheap to drill there. The profit margin for drilling in Nigeria was relatively high. Now, in Nigeria, oil companies do have to partner with a state-owned oil company. But even though they have to partner with a state-owned oil company, the private companies get a much higher share of the profits in Nigeria than they would get in other countries where the state is stronger. This is because the Nigerian state relied almost completely on oil revenue to fund itself in the 20th century, with 98% at one point of its budget coming from oil revenue. And this greatly diminished the Nigerian state's leverage. At one point in the 70s, the government announced a plan to nationalize and indigenize the whole industry. 
But the need for revenue foiled this plan. In the 80s, the oil glut emphasized the need to keep foreign investment flowing to keep the revenue base of the state adequate. So companies in the 80s and 90s were given even larger incentives to do more exploration. There were some indigenous oil companies started up, but they lacked the technical know-how to get going on their own, and that forced them to partner with the foreign behemoths. The foreign companies could then use the fact that they were partnered with indigenous companies to further legitimate their uh, oil exploration and to get more contracts. In addition to this power dynamic, public officials in Nigeria are estimated to siphon off 10 to 15 percent of the government's oil revenue, demanding commissions for oil contracts. So the companies would bribe these public officials with commissions. It is much cheaper for the companies to bribe Nigerian officials than it is for them to operate in countries where the state is stronger, has more negotiating leverage, is less dependent on them, and can therefore extract a higher percentage of the revenue. Right? Now, you can see this also in the legal system. It's not just a you know, big-picture theoretical discussion. Nigerian law remained based largely on British colonial law, and still there's a lot of British legacy in the Nigerian legal system. The law mandates that oil companies compensate the population when they seize property, that they pay for environmental damage, that they pay whenever they reduce the value of land someone owns. You know, the law is quite broad in demanding compensatory damage from the oil companies. And over time, the law has become more specific in demanding first in 1956, then in 1969. Then this was incorporated into the Constitution in 1979 and the African Charter on Human and People's Rights in 1983. All that said, in 1995, the World Bank found that oil companies in Nigeria should pay at least 50 times more for land than they actually pay. How do, how do they come up with this kind of figure? Well, while Nigerian law mandates adequate compensation, it often doesn't define adequate or it chooses to define adequate in a manner that heavily favors the oil companies. So to give you an example, in the 20th century, Nigerian law specified a fixed amount of compensation for a destroyed coconut tree, right? The amount is very low. It's less than half the value of a single harvest. When you take into account expenditures, if you ignored expenditures, it's less than a quarter of the value of the raw income brought in by the tree. Coconut trees can live for 25 years, but even if you only kept the coconut tree for 10 years, the companies are paying you know, one half of a single harvest, so one twentieth of the value of a tree that lives for 10 years. And of course, if it lives for 25 years, that number is larger. If you don't count the expenditures of the farmers, then the number would be even larger. So when ordinary Nigerians do have a case, so when the law is not specific in such a way that the oil companies can compensate them very cheaply and move on, they still often don't file lawsuits because many of the Nigerian farmers in the rural areas lack the education to realize they have a case or they lack the funds to pursue a case. 
When that obstacle is overcome and cases do get filed, Nigerian lawyers report that they often come under political pressure. Now, even supposing that your lawyer is willing to help you out and you know enough to get help and the issue that you are trying to pursue is not covered by something like the ridiculous coconut rule, there is then variety in the quality of the Nigerian courts. The local courts tend to be much poorer quality than the appellate courts. And while the federal courts are more competent, they are also more vulnerable to political pressure. And the federal judges are less likely to come from rural areas where oil is produced. And therefore, they're often less sympathetic. And then even if the court does rule in favor of the claimant, the government then often declines to enforce the court order. So look at all of the steps you have to get past here. First, you need to have a claim that is actually going to give you substantial amounts of money. It's not something like a coconut tree that has a specific amount that's in the law. It's got to be in that vague area where it's up to the legal system to decide what counts as adequate, right? Then you have to realize that you have a case and you have to have enough money to hire a lawyer. Then the lawyer has to not succumb to political pressure potentially to sabotage your case. Then you have to get a court that's competent and sympathetic to your perspective and also is, is going to resist political pressure to potentially rule against you. And then the government has to enforce the order. It's a lot of things that have to go right to successfully litigate against oil companies in Nigeria. It can happen. It does sometimes happen, but it's a tall order, right? Now, once the Republic came in in 1999, the security situation in Nigeria got worse for the oil companies. The politicians began using the elections as a way of competing for access to those oil commissions. And those oil commissions are worth a lot of cash. So politicians in Nigeria will go to great lengths to win elections including you know, sometimes partnering with armed gangs to intimidate voters. So because there is so much wealth at stake, the elections are violent. That said, the incumbent president, uh, president's part, president was defeated in 2015, and there was a peaceful transfer of power in 2015. But this is the only time a sitting government in Nigeria has peacefully transferred power to the elected opposition since 1960. And in 2019, voter turnout dropped under 40%. At this stage, 72% of Nigerians feel their politicians are corrupt. 57% say elections don't matter. 54% say the court system doesn't treat everyone fairly. 59% don't think politicians care what ordinary people think. Violent groups like Boko Haram and Islamic State West Africa operate in Nigeria. In 2021, President Buhari was suspended from Twitter after threatening to wage civil war against separatists in Biafra, a region in southeast Nigeria. Buhari referenced the 1967 to 1970 civil war in which one million Biafrans were killed. In response, uh, you know, Twitter suspended him, and then he banned Twitter in Nigeria, agreeing to lift the ban earlier this year, January 2022, 
when Twitter promised to establish a physical presence in Nigeria and pay tax. Under Buhari, attacks on pipelines have reduced oil production to the lowest levels seen in Nigeria since 1990. It remains the case today that Chevron gets 165,000 barrels of oil from Nigeria every day, more than it gets from Canada. But Shell is actively reducing its Nigerian holdings in line with its risk appetite. And oil companies are trying to get out of the land oil business and onto more offshore rigs where their equipment is less vulnerable to attack. So the upshot of all of this is that democracy does not automatically make the economic system more inclusive. And in some ways, it can make situations worse because the election means that there is a continuing competition for access to the commissions, which invites the politicians to get pretty aggressive with each other. The violence disrupts the oil oil production. That reduces foreign investment, diminishes revenue, and thereby further erodes state capacity. As the state weakens, it becomes less able to invest in economic diversification, further perpetuating its dependence on oil and on oil companies. And the demoralized electorate increasingly avoids the polls or supports rogue armed groups in a bid to protect itself from the rapacious companies and from the violence of the elections. So for oil companies, there seems to be a sweet spot. The Nigeria of the 1990s seems to be precisely what oil companies want, a state that's strong enough to defend their property claims, but dependent on them for revenue and easy to push around. A mix of order and disorder is better for the oil companies than either a fully functional state where they would have to pay the the state a proper share of the revenue or a failed state in which increasingly their pipelines come under attack from rogue groups. So in the last 20 years, Nigeria has moved in the direction of, I'm not going to say it is, but in the direction of a failed state in which the property claims of the oil companies are not consistently respected. And that is diminishing revenue. Conversely, in the 70s, when Nigeria tried to consolidate the state and strengthen it, that also aggravated the oil companies because it potentially threatened their uh, ability to push the government around. And so by withdrawing investment in the 70s, the oil companies were able to push Nigeria back into a more accommodating position, uh, aided, of course, by the oil glut in the 80s, the infamous glut in the mid 80s when oil prices collapsed and petrol states were left in an extremely vulnerable position where they had to be very accommodating. So that's kind of my summary of this. It's not a topic where there's a ton of initial stuff to lay out. I want to kind of throw this out at Alex and see what did he notice as he was looking through this. And uh, maybe there are some other cases that come to mind that might further shed light on you know, what differentiates weak states from strong states. What's the right amount of strength for a state? Uh for the purposes of, of pleasing oil companies or other kinds of companies. And then you know, how do you solve this kind of problem, which is that the thing that everybody always gets stuck on is, well, surely there must be something you can do to solve this. So what have you been thinking about, Alex? 
Um, <clears throat> when democracy, you said it wasn't inclusive in Nigeria, and I was thinking about the North Wallace and wine gas reading about how democracy might not be defined in terms of electoral competition. It matters whether it's in like a natural state or an open access order. And here's where it gets a bit, I don't know, maybe unfair because most of the world is still a natural state or in a transition stage to the open access order because they don't have corporations that can be impersonal and have their own kind of entity outside of the personal client relationships of their leaders. Yeah, a lot of this regime literature will draw a distinction between, in the case of, of the North Wine Gas book, uh, natural states and open access orders. In the case of the Asimoglu and Robinson book, it's extractive regimes and inclusive institutions. And these divisions sound like authoritarianism versus democracy, but are not straightforwardly reducible to authoritarianism versus democracy. And you can find instances in these books where they will frame states that would not strike most of us as particularly democratic, as inclusive or as open access. And they will frame states that otherwise do appear democratic as extractive. And so in this way, they're making an argument for democracy, but an argument that's blurry enough around the edges that in the cases where it doesn't cleanly apply, you can in some ways fudge it. Uh, for instance, Asa Maglu and Robinson argue that Britain in the 1700s is has inclusive institutions, when of course the percentage of the population in Britain in the 1700s eligible to vote was microscopic. Conversely, a state like Nigeria, which does have broad suffrage, would seem very much to be uh, extractive insofar as it is the case that whoever wins the elections tends to try to extract as much wealth as possible out of the oil wells for themselves and their cronies and uh, without necessarily ensuring that that money is invested in diversification of the economy or development of a post-oil future or an oil plus future. Do we think of life as kind of more stifling under those states because it's not about, well, there's not the assumption that individuals are equal and that you can have an opportunity and actually manifest it in this life economically. The idea is that you have to make friends within a, a client, a, a, a network of client and patrons, I think. And you have to yeah. befriend certain people. So in that you, sense, it's a little bit more like a, like a mob or yeah. like a political machine, a, you know, boss politics, as we might uh, in, the, in the United States say, machine boss politics. Because there's so, there's so fewer people that can actually, you can turn to or to hold to account for yeah. injustice. Part of what makes it difficult is that if you're dealing with a petrol state, oil is one of the few things in this world at this stage, that is very physical, that is in particular places and not in other places, and that is in and of itself valuable enough to be the basis for a whole class of, of very wealthy people. So in other states, it's harder to extract this much wealth through corruption because the forms of wealth, there are more different forms, there are different industries in the country, different uh, economic sectors that potentially compete with one another for influence. In the case of Nigeria, because it's all about the oil companies and all about oil, 
there isn't a whole lot of competition from other elites. So one of the things that in, say, Why Nations Fail or Violence in Social Orders, one of the things that's emphasized is competition within the elite, intra-elite competition. Uh, Schumpeter, in, also in his book, is, is very insistent on this presence of intra-elite competition as the thing which prevents the state from becoming overly extractive, uh, overly uh, path-dependent. One of the things that is often downplayed in some Marxist accounts is this possibility of intra-elite conflict, intra-class conflict. You can, of course, have wealthy oligarchs who come from different sectors who will compete with each other. And oftentimes, different sectors in an economy will have different interests. So in the case of the United States in you know, early American history, you have the you know, cotton farmers in the South who want tariffs to be as low as possible because they want European countries to buy their cotton. If you tariff British manufactured goods, the British respond by tariffing American agricultural exports. So if you're a southern cotton farmer, you don't want tariffs protecting northern industry because you don't want Britain to impose the reverse tariff on your agricultural product. Conversely, if you're a northern industrialist trying to get a factory off the ground, you very much want to see high tariffs against British manufactured goods. And you don't particularly care about the fate of the, uh, the cotton farm in the South, right? Uh, in that case, you have two different elites there, at least. You know, and this is a simplified account for the purposes of making the conceptual point. Two different elites that have contradictory economic interests and therefore will politically struggle against each other a bit. And through that struggle you can get a policy which sometimes favors one a little bit, sometimes the other, that's flexible, that's situational, right? If you just have one industry that's responsible for almost all of the state's revenue, you will not get that kind of counterweight. There's no other elite that can potentially contest the power of the first elite. And oftentimes, if you have a, a very poor population, being able to play different parts of the elite off against one another is how a weak class is able to start to get legs under it politically. So if you think about the workers in the 19th century in European countries, part of what helps the workers politically organize is the fact that there is a conflict between the aristocracy and the bourgeoisie in many European countries. Yeah the new rich and the old rich, that gives the workers an opportunity to maybe try to exploit conflicts between those classes and helps uh, you know, the workers get legs under them. In Nigeria, that's very difficult because it's just oil. It's just oil and there's very little else. Insofar as there's divisions, uh, the divisions are ethnic or regional and that uh, favors separatism or, or rebel groups or other forms of, of military disorder. It's too, they're overly, overly regional. In the United States, you could say that the American Civil War was similarly a kind of overly regional division. So part of the why the United States struggles to move economically past that conflict without the Civil War is that it's an overly regional conflict in which certain states are agricultural cotton states and certain states are industrial states, and there are clear-cut differences territorially between you know, certain regional governments very clearly have one economic interest and others have a different economic interest. 
today in the United States, a lot of the you know, red state, blue state talk is less effective at describing the situation because in point of fact, cities in the United States are blue, rural areas are red. It doesn't really matter which state you're in. This holds true everywhere in the country. If you look at a precinct or a county map, all of the cities, even the ones you might think of as Republican cities like, say, Houston, Texas, the core of Houston, Texas, the urban core, uh, voted for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election, right? And the hinterland in New York State voted for Donald Trump. Uh, so that's true everywhere now. But if you go back to you know, the pre-Civil War era, you actually have this kind of very regional division. And that increases the chances of separatism and civil conflict. Some of the stuff about ex lower classes exploiting elites reminds of Bartolus from last week, but maybe focus on something else because you were talking about uh, revolutions or uh, competition between elites. And that made me think of the French Revolution. And I was just wondering why a lot of maybe Marxists call it a kind of bourgeois revolution. I mean, some of these readings talk about cities eroding the rents of the aristocracy, which means that aristocracy can't cling on to their <clears throat> special privileges and all that. But I'm not sure that's right. enough to say that it definitely is like a bourgeois revolution and that there's no kind of social responsibility in these. Yeah. Well, the sense in which something like the French Revolution is a bourgeois revolution is that the landed aristocracy, its power and, and political privileges is based on owning land. So you have in, say, pre-revolutionary France, a set of people who own land, and then a set of people who have a lot of money, who have a lot of wealth, who uh, lend money to the French state, but are not landowners as such. So because they're not landowners, they don't have ti the titles associated with land ownership, and therefore they don't have the status privileges associated with being a noble. So in France, a lot of the conflict is between these people who, you know, they are funding the government, they have a lot of wealth, increasingly more wealth than the landed aristocrats do, but they're not treated like landed aristocrats. They aren't given the status and the privileges of landed aristocrats. So the egalitarianism in the French Revolution, at, at minimum, and of course, there are lots of different versions of equality that catch on during that period, but the minimalist version and the version that more or less gives birth to all the others is the idea that the nobles should not be treated as superior to the people who have money, but not titles and not uh, landed, uh, landed estates. The nobles should not be treated as superior to people who have money, as in just people who just have who money, just have but money. no titles and, and no, uh, you know, who aren't dukes, who don't have big uh, farming agricultural estates. That's right? the, the sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So the bourgeoisie in that story are the people who have money, but they don't have titles. They don't have the status that goes along with being part of the feudal aristocracy. Right. Uh, it's still often the case that these bourgeois revolutionaries were, were not talking about, say, giving uh, v the vote to the ordinary worker who doesn't have money either. Right. Uh, you know, someone like uh, C.A. argued that there was an active and a passive part of the citizenry in France. So the active part is the part that should be participating because it meets certain qualifications for that. The passive part doesn't meet those qualifications, has citizenship, but doesn't exercise it. The idea that you can have a passive citizen, of, of course, is, is very 
different from the way citizenship was conceptualized in ancient societies, where in ancient societies, if you didn't have the capacities to be an active citizen, then you just wouldn't be regarded as a citizen. You would be part of a political underclass. But one way you can incorporate this idea of equality is to have everyone be a citizen, but some of the citizens active and some passive. Now, there's a tension in that thought. And of course, the tension in that thought leads gradually to the erosion of the set of people who are classed as passive citizens and suffrage expansion. You can see how that logic develops, but it starts from this idea that someone who has a ton of money, but no landed title should not be treated as an inferior to someone who has a landed title and less, no more money or less money or, uh, you know, you know maybe, maybe about the same money. Is that corporate responsibility in the sense that it's a responsibility to corporations for people to make opportunities in that way that is legal and, and safe and all that? Yeah. So when we talk about corporate social responsibility, you know, CSR, that is a, a, a later development because in the French Revolutionary period, it's, you're not really talking about corporations. You're talking about the bourgeois merchant class. It hasn't uh, corporatized to the extent that it goes on to in the following century. The you know, idea of corporate social responsibility is, of course, a, a bit of a legitimation story for corporations. The corporation doesn't exist on this story solely for the purpose of uh, extracting uh, as, as much uh, income as possible and, and giving as much back to shareholders in the forms of dividends and uh, in the forms of higher stock prices. Right? Instead, the corporation also exists to promote some social good that stands apart from the revenue that it generates. Now, the, the reason that you might endorse CSR, uh, even if you are just straightforwardly you know, a capitalist, is that if you in, endorse CSR or are seen to endorse CSR, that may give you political advantages, which in the long run make it easier for you to operate or to expand. And that in turn can lead to higher income and revenue down the line. So if you sometimes give up or are at least seen to give up some of your revenue for the purposes of promoting social causes, that makes it easier for you to potentially operate uh, or expand operation down the line with less resistance, right? It's part of why, say, very, very wealthy billionaires in the United States care very much about their reputations and want to be well-liked and want to be seen to give to charity and want to be seen to have the right attitudes about things so that then if they you know, try to purchase something, uh, some other company, or they try to expand their operation, or they are politically interested in a particular outcome or uh, legislative outcome, that you're not upset about that because you like them. You think that they have your uh, the society's best interests at heart. You think they are mature in, in Max Weber's sense that they ultimately put their business interests to one side when those interests conflict with the good of the whole society. It doesn't have to be strictly speaking true as long as it looks like it could be true to people who are willing to entertain the possibility that it might be true. That's not a zero-sum game, is it? You, make, you have to make a little bit of loss in order to make a little bit of gain. Because when I used the word corporate social responsibility there, I was kind of bending the terms as they were used in the North Wallace Weingast reading. In that transition from the natural state to the open access order, where the open access order is all about corporations and how that's kind of a, a really, well, socially responsible thing to have. 
the ability to form them. But it's a responsibility to, because, yeah, it's like the logic of the order is the corporation. And therefore, any help, even making corporations is beneficial. It is a social responsibility to create that free market environment where the state defends your property and you don't have to rely on kind of warlords. Right. This kind of, you know, civil oligarchy, impersonal institutions argument. A corporation is, of course, an impersonal institution. And a publicly traded corporation, it's a corporation that is subject to the law of the market. So a corporation that exists, uh, that is publicly traded, has to perform in a way which maximizes shareholder revenue in the long term. And insofar as it has a CSR commitment, that has to somehow fit into maximizing revenue in the long term. Now, if you're in a period where nobody cares about CSR, it's foolish to care about it. Because if nobody cares about whether you have corporate social responsibility, then there will be no financial advantage to being seen to care about it. But if you're in an environment where lots of people think corporations should be responsible, then there are political advantages to a corporation being seen to be responsible that lead to economic advantages. So in this way, CSR relies on a norm being established through large numbers of corporations, uh, all being subject to the same discourse. And that's why there is an effort uh, among those who, who view CSR as the appropriate mechanism to speak these norms into existence by generating in the business press lots and lots and lots of positive stories about corporations that do it and negative stories about corporations that don't. Of course, all of this is in lieu of simply legislating the behavior of the corporations uh, the way that you know David Rutzman always puts the point, uh, you know, he he talks about corporations as fundamentally the same kind of thing as modern states. Insofar as they're artificial agents, their decisions are not reducible to any particular person or individual. They're structures that have a, a kind of institutional logic, right? And the institutional logic produces the decisions. You can't be CEO of a major company unless your behavior and your way of thinking conforms to that institutional logic. You'd never get to be in the decision-making position if it didn't. And indeed, if you were put in the decision-making position and you then acted in a way that violates shareholder interest, you'd be kicked out pretty quickly. It wouldn't take very long. So someone who is a CEO is managerial in the sense that they don't actually have any real power over what the company does. Right. They have to follow through on a set of structural incentives. The state is the kind of of uh, mother of all of the smaller corporations insofar as the state sets the rules for what you have to do, what form an organization has to take to be legally regarded as a corporation. And the state has the power to change you know, those rules and regulations and therefore theoretically to change what corporations are allowed to do. Now, if a small number of corporations acquires too much wealth and power, then that logic starts to break down and the state becomes subject to its children in kind of the way that an older person, you know, who is uh, no longer able to take care of themselves, becomes subject to the whims of their children, their adult children, right? A state creates a bunch of corporations, uh, alienates enough powers to them that they then are in position to potentially dominate it. Now, if you have a large number of different sectors and industries, these different corporations 
will check each other. They'll pursue political power through the state structure and they'll run into each other within the state's institutions and they will ultimately frustrate one another's attempts to dominate the state or take it for themselves. And you see that in the United States, where because of the scale of the United States, it's very difficult. Tocqueville talks about this for any one entrenched elite to dominate the whole structure on its own. There are too many different industries in the United States because it's too large a territory with too many different kinds of terrain, different kinds of climate, different kinds of minerals, different kinds of economic environments. Right now, if you're in a country that's smaller and is more dependent on a smaller number of things, then it becomes easier for the corporation, uh, for a set of corporations to dominate the state. And in the case of Nigeria, where the economy is almost totally given over to oil and gas, that means that the state is easily dominated by the corporations, especially given that the corporations are preponderantly foreign-based and therefore they are ultimately loyal to shareholders that are global, that are all over the world, that are not predominantly Nigerian. I, th I think the mistake I was making is to call innovation a kind of social responsibility and then therefore to claim that corporate social responsibility existed well before things like market rule of law and personal justice were meant to be accessible to not just elites but to everyone i mean there's there's civic mindedness there's the idea of rule of law now there are things that are in these books that we're talking about that are gestured at earlier in the history of political thought you know certainly schumpeter and his emphasis on a kind of rule of law based system, Hayek's emphasis on a rule of law based system. This emphasis on the law is in Greco Roman political thought. There is an importance that is given to the law. Uh, though it's more complicated than the picture that's sometimes painted by libertarian theorists uh, who, who are focused on a kind of pure minimalistic rule of law system, uh, in part because for, say, you know, there's a concept. Uh, in, in ancient uh, Athenian political thought uh, called isonomia that, say, Hayek associates with rule of law. But if you look at how Greek theorists use isonomia, and an article came out in History of Political Thought by John Lombardini on this point, if you look at how they actually use it, it's not rule of law by itself. It's rule of law as a consequence of an equal distribution of political power. So, if you have a distribution of political power that is more even, then it's harder for any particular part of the society to totally dominate the rest. And that uh, produces an order, not because it's clear who's in charge, but because no one is able to be in charge. And that produces a kind of structural phenomena where the decisions are coming out of a, a set of structural imperatives that are not reducible to any particular person's decision. And this is what you know, people like Hayek and Schumpeter you know, with their spontaneous orders, this is the kind of thing they're interested in. They're interested in markets, in states, in corporations, structures that are impersonal, that operate on the basis of structural imperatives that you cannot reduce to any given person's will. These are systems which aggregate the smaller decisions of individual people 
in ways that may not conform to any of the particular people's preferences. Uh, it's not just that they don't conform to all or most, uh, but you know, maybe totally different from the the inputs. And I think for some political theorists, these kinds of systems seem totalitarian in the sense that they don't ultimately give any particular person an ability to stop the impersonal system if the impersonal system has a logic that leads to a bad place. So you see, for instance, Marxist critiques of the market on that basis. But you also see a lot of libertarians who feel this way about the bureaucratic state, that the impersonal state is not necessarily something that you can rely on to produce a good aggregative decision making, even though you know, the vote in democracy is not that different from, say, consumers purchasing stuff, sending price signals to the market. It's not that different. Indeed, Schumpeter emphasizes similarities there. Uh, Don't they refer nonetheless, it's interesting how some people find certain structures totalitarian and other people find other structures totalitarian and have no problem with the first set of structures. It's just the libertarians that the impersonal state can't solve it, but they're kind of taking for granted the impersonal individual, this idea that we're all capable or of making like the correct moral judgment as to what counts as a tyranny or not, capable of holding arms to counteract the small government when it doesn't work. And to, to the liberal yeah. text, that is the impersonal state, but to them it's the impersonal citizen maybe? To well, this is part of you know, the Platonic and Aristotelian critique of democracy is that Isonomia is predicated on the idea that everybody has uh, or, or can have relatively easily the qualities that are necessary to participate in rule. So there's a little bit of a split between whether you value equal participation or all of the citizens having the same abilities or capacities uh, or the same capabilities, at least in certain fundamental respects. So for Plato, it's more important that the citizens all have certain capabilities than it is that they all participate. And Plato would rather exclude some people from participation if it's the case that everyone participating has the necessary capabilities. Conversely, the Athenian Democrat argues that you don't need a whole lot of capability to be an effective participant in Athenian democracy. If you can row a trireme or if you can uh, uh, pay for a hoplite kit, you know, Good enough. You can participate in the defense of the city. And if you can defend the city, then you deserve a, you know, a right to vote about what wars you fight in and what wars you don't. Uh, this is a you know, totally different standard for what is necessary to participate in politics. And the thing is, you know, Athens collapses in large part because it makes bad decisions. It's not as if the Athenian democracy made wonderful, amazing decisions. You know, if it did, it would still be around, or at least it would have lasted substantially longer than it did. However, if you go all the way in with Plato, geez, the standards that Plato has for participating in politics are very, very, very high. And by the ad admission of Plato and Aristotle, not compatible with being a wage laborer, not compatible with being someone who is principally concerned with money or status. So probably not compatible with being a, a member of the bourgeoisie uh, or even an ordinary aristocrat who... Uh, is just virtuous for reputational reasons. Uh, there are a lot of exclusions if you go all the way into Plato and Aristotle's thinking that uh, aren't even there historically in ancient or medieval societies, even in the more exclusive or more hierarchical 
societies. Uh, so that's a big question about whether this kind of equal order can, through distributing powers more evenly, actually uh, give you a more stable order than one which you know, identifies the particular people who ought to be in charge and puts them in charge, uh, as the more hierarchical political theorists prefer. Uh, yeah, so in a way, this kind of one of the things I like about talking about institutions in the way that we've been doing is that we have a kind of notion that democracy is clearly one thing and authoritarianism is clearly another thing. But if you start talking about some of these different terms you can use to describe sets of institutions, uh, personal, impersonal, totalitarian, tyrannical, uh, extractive, inclusive, open access, not, these categories start to get blurred and they don't just get blurred in unhelpful ways that, you know, cause you to accidentally endorse authoritarian states or cause you to refuse to endorse democratic states. They help you realize that being a democracy by itself doesn't necessarily get you where you need to go. And being an authoritarian state by itself you know, doesn't automatically mean that the state is, is going to be unstable or going to collapse. There have been very stable authoritarian regimes. There have been very unstable democratic regimes. There are certain advantages to certain kinds of institutional mechanisms. Certainly being able to vote the bums out is a release valve for democracies that authoritarian states don't have. But that doesn't mean that that's the only factor that's important when we talk about institutional design. There's a huge variety of ways you can structure a democracy. Different democracies have different advantages and disadvantages. There is not one simple, straightforward way to design your institutions so that you get all the good stuff and none of the bad stuff. And that, that, that's why it's not so simple. You can't just run around the world and go, oh, you know, the solution to this problem is liberal democracy uh, here, there, everywhere. Uh, it's it's going to be more complicated than that. And the people who don't want to think about it in those shades of gray don't give useful advice to countries that are different from their own. Maybe one of them, for example, the word inclusive, like an inclusive community doesn't turn a blind eye to all the issues in its like uh, litter or graffiti or things like that. But people on the right, for example, might claim that you know, the atomization between individuals that causes that is a result of basically everyone not speaking the same language. So it can't be integrated enough. And then you... Yeah, so yeah. Here, here there's an interesting question of, you know, if we talk about inclusivity, right? So inclusion tends to imply some level of pluralism that different, in some way, shape or form, different sets of people are participating in the same structure. Now, the right tends to uh, conflate pluralism with liberal individualism, right? Uh, you know, when, I, when you think about what liberalism is, you can really break it into three constituent parts. The idea that the individual is the primary unit of society, the idea that the market is the best way to aggregate individual preferences, and the idea that there must be some level of pluralism, that there must be toleration uh, and, and indeed acceptance of the different preferences that different individuals have because all of those preferences come from individuals and insofar as they come from individuals, they have value or are legitimate or must be recognized, right? That's 
you know, three different prongs that all do nonetheless fit together on the same fork. The There are other ways, of course, of thinking about pluralism apart from in connection to liberal individualism. We do know about states that were broadly pluralist without being liberal. Their pluralism comes out of different ideas. Uh, you know, in the case of the Roman Empire, the all-embracing peace, which, of course, doesn't embrace the barbarians because the barbarians fail to value it, according to uh, Roman authors. But otherwise, otherwise, an all-embracing peace, an all-embracing peace embraces lots of different groups. It's, it has plurality in it, uh, but that doesn't necessarily make it liberal. It is a, a regime of tolerance. Uh, it maybe takes a view uh, similar to, say, Gandhi's kind of syncretic position. Uh, you know, Gandhi says that there's you know, many paths, one truth. The truth for Gandhi is kind of like a kid's drawing of the sun, you know, where you have the circle and then you have the different rays, the lines all pointing in to the same circle. Right. If you think that things work this way, if you if you're a little bit syncretic like Gandhi, then the fact that some people have this religious view or that religious view isn't in and of itself a problem as long as all of the different views, there's a version of all of them that would point to the same truth. It might be the case that all of the prongs have some people who are wayward or lost or what have you. But there is some way of being a good Muslim, a good Hindu, a good Jain, a good Buddhist. Some version of that, right? If there's some version of all of those things, then it's possible to have a society which includes all of them. Uh, that's not liberal pluralism. Gandhi is not a liberal, but he is a pluralist. Uh, Septimius Severus is not a liberal, but he is a pluralist. And I think that is, is often missing in right-wing critiques. Uh, you can pick on liberal individualism without abandoning pluralism. You don't have to have a, a kind of nation-statey uh, ethno-essentialist conception in the way that some right-wing theorists assume that you have to. And, and the reason that they often assume it is because they're not familiar with other ways of doing it. They uh, have grown up in the era of nation-states they haven't necessarily been introduced to, I think, other ways of thinking about it. Uh, or they think that those other ways of thinking about it have been superseded in some way by nationalism. That nationalism is better or more satisfying or what have you. Maybe strategic economic nationalism could help companies deliver corporate social responsibility, CSR, I'll call it. Could deliver CSR oh. better. You know, you could be a protectionist uh, on, in certain situations for reasons that aren't to do with affirming uh, you know, nationalism. The idea of, say, raison d'etat, reason of state, you know, that a state has a particular set of interests, uh, precedes the idea of nationalism or a kind of you know, organic people that the state exists to represent. You know, it precedes that metaphysical move. So you can say, oh, it's in the interests of a state to protect a particular industry you know, for the purposes of having uh, uh, you know, its own steel industry that, and not being dependent on you know, other states for, for steel imports in the event that there's something bad that happens that causes a uh, steel shortage or makes it difficult for people to transport steel across the ocean. You, know, you can make an argument for that that's on the basis of the state's interest without having to use the idea of an organic essential national people. You don't need that idea to make a case. 
maybe not need, but then if you don't prioritize that, then instead you'll think things like subsidies or greenwashing are, is a solution to things like, you know, fossil fuel pollution in Nigeria, oil spills everywhere. You might not. Well, certainly there are lots of you know, Marxists who would take issue with you know, greenwashing uh, and with the relationship between oil companies and the state in Nigeria without necessarily buying some kind of organic nationalism. So you can think about, say, uh, the politics of Franz Fanon, the pan-African theorist who argued uh, for a kind of African unity. So one way to think about the problem in Africa is that there, the states in Africa are too small, which makes them weak. Because they're small, they tend to have a handful of industries, often mineral wealth, oil wealth industries that dominate. They are uh, kind of subject to the companies that operate in those industries. And if they all got together in a big pan-African union, then they would have more negotiating leverage because companies would need access to the whole union all at once. Uh, and there would be lots of different companies that would need access and those companies could be played off each other to strengthen the union politically. Now, a lot of thoughtful third world theorists using third world here lovingly in the way that it used to be used uh, and not in the pejorative sense that some people use it today. Uh, a lot of these theorists yeah, I think we're right in thinking that a pan-African union would be effective if you could build one at contending with the influence of corporations in Africa. Uh, similar, same thing goes for pan-Arabism in a lot of post-colonial area uh, regions. This idea of bringing lots and lots of states together and pooling access to the mineral wealth and the oil wealth of those states and using that to get enough revenue out of the companies, uh, or maybe even to replace the companies, to nationalize them and indigenize them, uh, you know, at that point, you would have enough weight that you could potentially actually pull that off. And then that might enable you to develop other parts of the economy and transition to uh, a more, a more well-rounded approach. The trouble is, the, at the same time that there is this idea of making a pan-African or a pan-Arab state, there is the converse idea of breaking these states up into even smaller units based on tribal groups. And of course, if you break them up into even smaller units based on tribal groups, well, then the tribes will uh, not be able to fight with one another for power. You won't have elected officials who only care about their particular region of the country trying to win the national election and then siphon off a bunch of money to their home region. You are less likely to have that. Uh, but if you have a situation with lots of tiny tribal microstates, all of those states are going to be in an even weaker, more deferential position to the companies. And even if you have a, a pan-regional whatever, that's going to assume some kind of Huntington civilizations, or it will work with those arguments. Some ethnic identity. Yeah, certainly if you were to create, say, a big pan-Arab union, someone like a Samuel Huntington would go, see evidence for the civilizational thesis that the world is divided up into half a dozen or so different civilizations. Though it doesn't necessarily have to be framed in civilizational terms. Unions, political unions 
can come into existence because they make sense for the purposes of advancing peace or prosperity in a region yeah. without some kind of appeal to essentialized civilizational distinctiveness. Now, one of the issues, I think, with the European Union is this word European and this implication that there's a civilizational distinctiveness to Europeans uh, when in, in point of, you know, in point of fact, there are some major differences in the economies of what we call Eastern Europe, uh, Northern Europe, and Southern Europe, to use some general terms, but I think terms that gesture in the direction of the real existing differences. Uh, you know, Poland and Hungary, you know, post-Eastern uh, Bloc states, do not have the same economic systems as, say, Spain and Italy, and those countries do not have the same systems as, say, the Netherlands or Germany. And putting all of those states together in one economic union means that you're going to have conflicts among the interests of those different regions. And if you ignore the reality of that and pretend that they all have a European civilizational character that can paper over those divisions, that gets you into trouble. When you're trying to bring different smaller units together the only way that you can overcome the divisions among the smaller units is to, it, at first, recognize them. Now, that's not to say that you cede power to them. You have to find a way of making the national or federal or uh, uh, unit supreme and to put it on a path where its power will slowly expand without, at the same time, uh, aggravating or upsetting the regions that would otherwise lose autonomy. Now, of course, European Union theorists think about this, but they tend to think about it in cultural terms or in terms of how democracy works in Europe. They don't tend to think about it in terms of the economic system and the need for functioning economic systems in every part of the European Union. For the whole European Union to move forward, all of the states need functioning economic systems that give people hope for a better future, that ties that hope for the better future to being in the European Union. And if it starts to be felt that there is no economic future for them in the European Union, then commitment to the European Union and certainly commitment to further unionization will fail. So, you know, in the case of Italy, we've seen the right get substantially stronger in Italy in large part because nobody is doing anything to put Italy on a path where it has a future that people in Italy can feel excited to be part of. Uh, Italy has been put into a nasty position ever since the Euro crisis of 10 years ago that uh, has really hampered its ability to grow and made people there feel uh, a lack of, of hope. Uh, and that doesn't work. Similarly, if you're trying to build, say, a federal republic in Nigeria, you need to administer to the needs of different regions without having a, a straightforward competition for power in which somebody from some region wins, then his ruling group gets in, and then that person robs the rest of the country blind. And the presidential system that Nigeria has adopted, while it has a federal element that recognizes the regions, in part because it's a presidential system, the person who wins the presidential election is, doesn't have their power dependent on 
the whole population. One of the advantages of the Westminster system is that the prime minister's power very overtly and straightforwardly depends on there being a coalition in the legislature to support the prime minister. And that coalition will include legislators from different parts of the country. The presidential system, insofar as it breaks the president off from the majority in the legislature, A, it pits the president against the legislature. So it creates situations where presidents pursue power at the expense of the legislature. And then B, it creates situations in which the president is not particularly worried about uh, support from particular regions of the country and thinks that the president, the president thinks he can govern without their support, uh, either by driving down voter turnout in the regions that he doesn't like or sending gangs to disrupt uh, polling in regions he doesn't like, uh, threatening martial law, civil conflict in regions that the president doesn't like. All of these things are a bigger problem in presidential systems than in uh, Westminster style uh, systems, potentially. And there are things you can do in a Westminster system to make a mess. If you create an electoral system that is too prone to division and you you end up with uh, too many parties and an impossibility of getting a stable coalition, uh, or you have the multiple uh, you know bicameral legislature with the two houses on radically different electoral systems then you get a you know, gridlock you get an inability to move that's true on either the american or the british model uh, but when the president in a country that doesn't have a very powerful sense of of unity around the state doesn't have to be national unity but unity around the state uh, when that country has a presidential system and the president has a support base that is mainly one ethnic group or one religious group or one region or you know exclude specifically certain ethnic groups regions religious groups that creates further conflict it means that the people in the groups that are excluded have little incentive not to either try uh, separatism or to wage their own electoral violence in a bid to try to win the election next time Uh, So if you want to build that level of commitment, you need a political system that makes it difficult for the president to operate without the support of uh, broad spectrum support in lots of different regions. In the United States, this is achieved through the Electoral College, which forces the president to get support from large numbers of states and makes it difficult for the president to pile up support in specific states to the exclusion of other states. Because when that happens, if the president's base is overly geographically concentrated and the president's opposition is overly geographically concentrated in specific states, that's when you can get civil conflict because you'll have a a very clear and sharp distinction among the states. Fortunately, in the United States, we don't have that. A, because the Electoral College prevents that kind of of, uh, very sharp uh, state division. And then B, because over time, what has happened is that red states are just states that are disproportionately rural and blue states are just states that are disproportionately urban. But all all states have blue cities and and rural uh, red areas. But in a country like Nigeria, it's much more often the case that you have this sharp regionalized split and the electoral system in uh, in nigeria doesn't properly deal with this it uh, is 
too American in certain respects without being American enough in others. But it's sad, though, because it's a valid point, but it's more of a policy argument than an institutional argument. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and conversely, a lot of people would make the argument in a post-colonial context against the Westminster system because it tends to favor the capital region too much. And because the party leadership, all of the legislators are, of course, living in the capital, even if they represent constituencies that are outside the capital, they're all living in the capital. Therefore, over time, their interests tend to become capital interests. And so even if you do have these representatives, if they're tied into ministerial posts in the government, they're living in the capital, they have families in the capital, their commitment to outlying areas may diminish to some degree over time. But I think that's also an issue with proportional representation because proportional representation diminishes the connection between the legislator and the constituency in post-colonial contexts where you still have a lot of variance in regional loyalty that can further erode the uh, ability of legislators to represent lower income regions further away from capitals. In post-colonial African states, the capital regions are much wealthier than hinterlands. And that is something that you you need to in some way address. Making uh, Nigeria federal is an effort to address that. But with a president who can still draw too heavily on specific regions for support and not on others uh, with a state that is overly dependent on oil, where there's intense competition for those commissions. It's very difficult. Uh, But I I do think you would probably have to, at this point, start, uh, you would probably need to replace that the, the current version of the Republic in Nigeria with something else. Uh, That's not to say that I think you should bring back the military dictatorship, but I think it would need some level of reorganization. The evidence at this point in Nigeria over the last 20 years is that the Fourth Republic as constituted produces too much disorder. There is too much violence in the elections, and there are too many disaffected regions that have uh, developed increasing uh, willingness to either uh, support separatism or to aid or abet the violent groups in the hinterlands. That won't do. So if you wanted to improve the situation in Nigeria, I think you'd need to write a new Republican constitution. I think probably you'd want, I I would probably suggest going in the direction of, of something like uh, bicameral legislature with Westminster system in uh, a House of Commons and then a kind of upper house that is... Uh, heavily heavily federated that is uh, equal representation on the basis of region that corresponds with the different uh, the different regional administrations and that's probably what i would try there's still a risk that those two houses would lock up and and not be able to cooperate at times that could be a gridlock risk but i think if you just went to pure westminster from here that might fetishize the capital too much I'm speculating, and and I'm not a specialist in in Nigerian politics or in African politics, and I'm sure specialists would have more specific thoughts, but I'm trying to apply broad thoughts I have about institutional design to a context where it's very difficult to build good institutions because you don't have trust. 
in the existing institutions and the regions mistrust each other for valid reasons. There have been civil conflicts in Nigeria in which the capital sends an army to a region to suppress separatists. And once that happens, there has to be a period of reconciliation. And that means redevelopment of the area that was badly bloodied in the civil conflict. One of the problems that we have in the United States is that the southern states are still substantially poorer than the rest of the country. The gap between Mississippi and New York is roughly as large as the gap between Greece and Germany in terms of per capita GDP uh, or uh, and median household income. It's a very sizable gap. And that causes trouble because when you have regions that feel neglected, that breeds resentment. Though I think at this point, it's less about states resenting other states and more about rural areas of the United States in general resenting urban areas. Because post-2008, the overwhelming majority of employment gains came in urban areas. And even as the economy recovered jobs in the uh, you know, 2010 to 2016 period, those the rural areas continued to lose jobs during that recovery. What we had was was not just a growth in jobs, but a redistribution of jobs from rural areas to cities. And jobs paying less because of automation, things like that. It sounds like Nigeria won't get a solution until maybe after oil makes the money. Well, after oil, I mean, after oil, if you wait until the point at which the oil revenue really diminishes, then you're going to have a failed state situation, a, a real failed state situation, a totalizing failed state situation more similar to Democratic Republic of the Congo, because you won't have enough revenue for the state. You won't have any arms of the state established that can collect revenue by other means. So the state, I, I think, in that situation would collapse. If you really starve a petrol state of revenue for long enough, a state that really depends on oil, not just for 2% or 5%, but for the bulk of its revenue, that can lead to state collapse. Uh, so I think that there needs to be a solution in Nigeria before the oil runs out. The trouble is that the oil itself becomes an impediment to uh, to changing the situation. Though there are precedents of, uh, you know, there are petrol states that have managed to radically change their relationship to oil companies and to the oil industry. It has happened. Uh, the one that comes to my mind immediately would be Libya, which under Gaddafi was able to redistribute a lot of oil revenue out of the oil producing region in eastern Libya to people in western Libya where there isn't much oil, uh, leading to you know, the highest per capita income in Africa for a while. Of course, that government was very authoritarian and very dependent on Gaddafi and on Gaddafi's survival. And because Gaddafi was redistributing wealth, not just on a class basis, but regionally within Libya, Cyrenaica, the eastern part of Libya, was never particularly loyal, always resented Gaddafi for redistributing wealth away from that region. And so at every moment uh, when there was an opportunity to try to get out, of, uh, to try to secede or to try to rebel, uh, used use those moments. And in the case of the Arab Spring, the uh, Cyrenaicans who are tired of giving oil wealth to Western Libya uh, were able to use the enthusiasm in the West for deposing Middle Eastern autocrats to solicit Western support for defeating Gaddafi. But then are we not a bit 
and ignoring innovation. I mean, Libya sounds a bit like Russia in Stalin or the colonies in the 1600s. You just move resources from one area to the other, but you don't generate new stuff. You mentioned Italy. How are we going to generate a new type of economy? You know, Britain. Yeah. In, in the case of Libya, so the, there's, they did manage to get the highest per capita GDP in Africa. So there was, you know, a significant improvement in living standards, significant improvement in education and healthcare standards. That said, generally, the Libyan government's attitude was uh, not to try to force people to develop other competitive industries, but instead allowed people to reduce their number of work hours. And that I don't think is really preparing for a post oil future, uh, at least not given the way that the world economy currently operates. Uh, but with that free time. So, you know, you, you have a point there. I think that the Libyan government managed to improve the standard of living for the people living in it during uh, under Gaddafi, but it was not able to really adequately prepare or make a plan for the future. A country that has managed to do that would be Norway, which, of course, Norway sticks all of its oil wealth in a sovereign wealth fund, uses that to purchase assets all over the world, giving itself a diverse asset base and uh, continuous returns to the state that grow over time. Even after the oil wealth is gone, the Nor Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund will remain and will get bigger and bigger and bigger as time goes on. And without going down a rabbit hole, I guess that depends on, well, Norway having inclusive institutions, other countries having extractive so that there can be an international market well, where you make that money. It's also Norway was already reasonably rich. It was already a European country that, that was relatively well to do. So when oil shows up in Nigeria, A, it's not as large a percentage of the overall economy because the rest of the economy, it's a rich country economy. B, because uh, there's already a relatively high standard of living, there isn't as much a demand to raise the standard of living. And in a country like Libya, getting out of the basement and to the point where you're a middle income country is going to be what people will be focused on. And of course, when you're doing that, the initial steps are setting up basic infrastructure, hospitals, schools, getting the literacy rate up. You've got to do all of those things before it becomes possible to stick the oil wealth in a sovereign wealth fund. And in the case of Libya, if Gaddafi had tried in the more recent years to do something like that. Uh, the problem that he would have immediately encountered was lack of access to international markets because Gaddafi was viewed as a pariah by Western states. And why was he viewed as a pariah? Because he was not giving the Western oil companies a large share of the oil wealth. He was instead increasingly focused on you know, uh, redistributing the money throughout the country and using it to develop the education and healthcare sectors. So that the, there's a complication here, which is access to international markets and access to international investment depends in large part on how other countries, uh, specifically rich, powerful Western countries, how they view you. And their view of you depends in part on how you treat the oil companies. And if you try too hard to develop your country at the expense of the oil companies, paradoxically, it then becomes harder to develop your country because then the Western states will view you as, you know, maybe a little bit too left wing and they'll start denying you access so that you can't become a model for other states 
in similar circumstances. Because if you became a model country, then lots of other countries would start to do what you were doing. And that would be to the disadvantage of those oil companies and to the shareholders, most of whom are Westerners. Just think how many international organizations there have to be on every level for it to be unthinkable for you to actually stick to up to that and say, no, I'm not going to be a banana republic. I'm not just going to produce oil. And that's maybe where Libya is effective to give workers more labor time. If they have time at least to, I don't know, create more institutions that change the discourse about, you know, what can be a suitable country in an international economy and who's not allowed in. But yeah, it, it at least at least if you have oil, if you're a petrol state, that does at least give you the option to give your population some more leisure time so that they can pursue some things of value. And while it may not last forever, it might be the first time your population has had such a chance. Uh, and a lot of governments in that situation take what they can get. Uh, the governments that have uh, tended to buddy up with the West, like, say, the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia or the UAE, uh, they've made a ton of money. But again, that money doesn't necessarily get down to ordinary people in the country. In the case of Saudi Arabia, there's a constant shortage of uh, blue-collar laborers. Migrant workers get imported from other places. They're not paid very well, not treated great. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that's being built in, say, you know, the UAE, is it's a bit of a playground for Westerners visiting the region, often because they are you know, have oil interests there. It's not necessarily something that will sustain a diverse economy post-oil. A lot of it is a little bit theme parky. But why would you come to the UAE for a theme park? Well, you, you come because you're on a business trip. And why are you on a business trip? Because maybe you care about your oil or your security interests in the region. Uh, and the security interests, of course, fall back on the oil interests, the reason that you have such a security interest is that you're concerned about control over the oil. Uh, so I, I don't know that that is going to work as a model in the long term for them either. The, the thing that is, is ultimately at the end of the day, and we're over an hour, so I think this is probably a good spot to wrap. When you get ahead in certain respects as a country, you then have further advantages in the next round of competition. And the more times you win competition, the more decades you win, the more years you win, the more times you make more money than everybody else and get more investment than everybody else, the bigger your advantages are the next year or the year after that, because you can use that money to further improve your situation. You know, it's kind of like in my home state of Indiana, you know, the, the state government has a strategy of cutting the tax rate as much as possible to attract investment from other states. A lot of Midwestern states are historically swing states or blue states, so they have higher taxes than Indiana does, especially Illinois, especially the Chicagoland area, right? So, you know, the strategy for revitalizing, we have, you know, uh, a city called Gary in Lake County. It's uh, the place where uh, a lot of the old steel mills were, some of them still are, but the number of jobs in the steel industries plummeted as the mills have automated heavily or closed or moved. 
Uh, yeah. If you cut the tax rate to try to attract people from Illinois to Indiana, they don't move to Gary because Gary has a bad school system and bad infrastructure. It's got a high crime rate. It's not a beautiful place to live. They don't come to Gary. They come to the towns in Indiana that have a good tax base and good schools and maybe they have universities in them. They come to the towns that are already ahead, right? So when you cut taxes to bring people to Indiana, you don't bring them to Gary. You bring them to other towns that are nicer, like, uh, say, Valparaiso or uh, Bloomington. And so those towns, which already had the advantage, get bigger advantages from the state's policy. Uh, Gary doesn't benefit from the competitive strategy because Gary is already behind. And this is the trouble for a lot of poor countries. A lot of poor countries relate to the world economy the same way Gary relates to the state of Indiana, where, yeah, the advice is to follow a competitive strategy to attract foreign investment. But if you're already at a disadvantage, you're not going to get into a better position very quickly or very easily by following the, the, the competitive incentives. It's just like when in the European Union, states are told to copy Germany, do what Germany does, have the labor market laws that Germany has. Well, A, if everybody was doing it, it would confer no advantage on anybody. Uh, and B, you know, Germany's already doing it. So if you do it, you're late to the party. You won't get the same advantage which Germany got when Germany was the only country doing it or one of a small number of countries doing it. And so this is the... The endless game that's played with poor countries uh, where they are told, oh, well, if you do this or if you do that, things will get better. Uh, most of the time, if they do those things, things don't get better. And sometimes when they do those things, things get worse. Sometimes if you democratize and you copy the formal democratic institutions of Western states, uh, in your context, they don't work. But you know, in the moment when you say, look, we're democratizing, we're trying to do what you want. Uh, we're liberalizing our markets. We're trying to do what you want. Uh, in the moment, it gets you a lot of praise, but in the long run, you end up not much better off than where you started. All that said, you know, it is still the case that a lot of these poor countries are marginally less poor than they used to be 50 years ago. The liberal argument is that if, you, if all this just goes on for long enough, eventually everybody will get out of poverty. If it just goes on long enough... Uh, but it's certainly not operated with the goal of getting everybody out of poverty. Getting everybody out of poverty is at most a positive externality for liberal capitalism. The goal is shareholder returns for you know, ExxonMobil in Nigeria. And uh, you know, if that happens to eventually very slowly increase the incomes of the ordinary Nigerians, well, great. That's a, a good story you can tell when people criticize the system. But it's not as if the system is trying to do that. That's not what it's for. The, the annoying thing is that systems that are designed to do it are often thwarted from uh, being able to succeed because they then get locked out of international markets. It's a, it's a problem that uh, has existed for such a long time and unfortunately will exist for a long time to come. But I hope that 
the listeners appreciated our efforts to think about it a little bit. Much good may it do, you know, <laughs> people who have to deal with this. It's it's frustrating. It's frustrating. It's part of why you know people go well. Why don't you do more academic research on on developing countries? You know, why do people tend to focus on the rich countries? A part of it's because it's so difficult to think of ways that you could make poor or working class people better off in the United States, let alone in countries that have so much less power and are so much more at the mercy of institutions and structures that they have so little voice in. They're so far away from being in the position where they'd be able to say, no, we don't like this. Let's do it a different way. Uh, even, Even trying to think about, say, workers in the United States gets me depressed, let alone, let alone poor Nigeria. So thank you guys for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye.